Overwhelmed by the Lord, I can tell you there have been so many times this week, early in the morning, the Holy Spirit just came there, overwhelmed, ooh, glory, overwhelmed. Sometimes I look at my precious wife and it's overwhelmed how good he is to me. Look at all the children and grandchildren and all the notes I get and emails. And for those of you online uh, reaching out, thank you. Overwhelmed at the goodness of God. And uh, then I go over there and visit that new building. Ooh, glory. Man, oh man. And then God reminds me of Isaiah chapter 60. It's a new day. I'm going to bring the Gentiles in, and you're going to, all those promises, man, I've been writing the last uh, chapter, <laughs> I don't get any ideas, but uh, I've been writing the last chapter in that little book, uh, Building by Faith, it's a uh, first edition and then second edition, and now this will be the third and final edition, and uh, I've been dictating as we've been going along, and um, Have you ever uh, preached or said something and gotten blessed by your own preaching? (laughs) Well, that's what I got blessed by my own book there. I like, because I remembered, uh, you know, the moments and just how beautiful. There have been a lot of crazy negatives that has come down uh, through this lockdown to churches, to businesses, really for the insanity. (laughs) Really, it's really been a good word. But for all the insanity, there have actually been a number of benefits. I mean, we have to simply say that. Uh, For the church, uh, the expanding of our online ministry has been, and presence has been awesome. I mean, we had a um, podcast, actually pretty successful uh, uh, podcast, uh, but now uh, we've uh, had an online video presence that really... Um, has as many views as a lot of churches much larger than us, and so we're grateful for that. And, and the new building, uh, we already had a plan for, for uh, expanding that, but now it's, it's uh, secure. I mean, it's dialed in, and uh, they're getting ready to finalize uh, uh, all the uh, equipment for that. <laughs> I'm going to have to have a resuscitation this week after we pay the bill on that, but uh, um, I mean... Uh, so, but we're looking forward to what God's going to do. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. And so, uh, certainly that's a benefit. I think there has been a revaluing of the place that assembling and churching ourselves together has. I don't know about you, but I think it's, uh, you, we get kind of a custom, maybe even take for granted church. And uh, some of our senior saints, boy, I'll tell you one thing, they, they just bring you to, to shame, boy. And uh, I know you're looking at me saying, oh, you're one of them. But uh, um, honestly, uh, boy, I mean, they will just come to church. I mean, they practically have to have an ambulance bring them here, but they'll come. I'm not going to miss church if I possibly can. And so um, why? You'd say, uh, just so you can get something? No, those people are here to give something. One of our dear men said, you know, I miss uh, Brother Herb Oppel, and I do too. I miss so many saints of God that um, have gone on, and some of those who uh, aren't able to be with us right now, we certainly value you, but You'd say, why is it so important to gather together? Well, I will tell you, the devil is fighting that. He is fighting that tooth and nail. That alone tells me it's important. If the devil is fighting church so bad, he hates church. And um, the, uh, the theology of churching, the theology of assembly, the theology of gathering... It's so important because the stronger our theology is on this subject, the deeper, the richer, the more powerful our worship will be. If church means just whatever, just another meeting, another service time, 
or it then really it's it's just it means nothing to us and i will tell you i really believe the lord really helped us as a church and as an american church really as a worldwide church where are your values what do you value are you taking for granted the beauty of gathering together there have been forces as never before attempting to weaken if not outright eliminate public gatherings this has been going on not just recently but it's been going on for years a growing addiction to sports i mean an absolute addiction i mean it used to be parents would you know send their kids after school to down to play baseball the little league for a little bit and they'd come home for dinner and you'd play a game or something a week and practice once or twice but now i mean parents will get coaches and they will, I mean, basically, you, you're not going to see them all every weekend for months at end because their kids are going to play softball or soccer or whatever it is. An addiction, an absolute addiction to sports and recreation. I mean, people, they say that recreational vehicle sales have just soared uh, since this lockdown because people want to you know, they want their own little safe environment. They want to get out. Well, I know where they're going to get out. They're going to get out on Sundays. They're not going to even give a, a hoot about church. And uh, the proliferation of government regulation has been just unbelievable. Zoning laws, restricting gatherings, building laws to the point where you can for the average church, they, unless you're just absolutely crazy, <laughs> it is hard to build a brand new assembly building, especially in California. I mean, you got to be you know, out of your mind and, and just have a cause, just because it's crazy. And taxation has been ever increasing. They don't call it taxation, just uh, revenues. And now of recent, of course, under the guise of public health, the left-wing anti-churchers are having a field day making churches stop doing. Many churches have stopped the gospel altogether. I mean, when in the world did we get the idea that it is time to quit preaching the gospel because there's a health problem? Tell that to uh, great missionaries who've gone off to Africa and fought diseases say, well, you might die there. Yes, I might. But those precious people need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here. I mean, unbelievable. The mindset of people, and then add to that for years now, the ever-increasing individualistic, don't turn me down too much now, the, the ever-individualistic uh, consumer mindset, the average... American has had. And honestly, it's just proliferated. I mean, it was bad before. It's just tragic now. Anymore, people treat church like a Netflix program. I mean, we're going to check out the next program. We don't like it. It's off, you know. I don't like that particular program, you know. I mean, when did church get to be a program, a, a place where, you know, we just turn it on when we like it and we don't turn on if we don't like it. Folks, church is a gathering. It is an assembly. It is a family. It is an army. It is a coming together. It is a gathering for God. There is nothing that has ever been as exciting as a local New Testament, blood-washed, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring church. And that's the plan that God's given us. He's given us a church. And I tell you what, it is hard to imagine how there's been such a crazy mindset about church. I love church. Everything good in my life is integrally connected to it. And I just can't wait to see what God does next every single Sunday. And uh, when we made the decision to meet again as an assembly and then now to have Sunday school today, boy, I'm there. I can't wait for a couple more weeks. Sunday night, I'll be there. Why? Because I love church. I love watching church prosper. My time, my money, my efforts, my goals, 
My whole life is wrapped up in the New Testament church, and I am proud to be part of church. And I'm also proud to be a, a Baptist. Now, the Baptists have a rich heritage, but I will tell you sometimes that will come back and haunt you. I read a story this week. I think I may have uh, shared with you before, but I love it. And with this, we'll pray. A man came to a Baptist church and asked to see the pastor. He said, Pastor, my dog died, and I would like to have a Christian burial for my dog. The pastor said, well, I'm really sorry to hear about your dog, but we're Baptists, and we don't do funerals for dogs. But you might want to go on down to the Lutheran church. Those Lutherans will do just about anything. The man turned sadly and said, all right, well, I'm sorry you won't do my dog's funeral, but I, I understand. I'll try the Lutheran church. But would you tell me how much do you think is appropriate to leave for a memorial for the church, for my dog? I was thinking about giving $10,000 in memorial for my dog. My pastor said, wait a minute. You didn't tell me your dog was a Baptist. <laughs> Uh-huh. Well, we Baptists. All right. Well, that's glad to be here in church. Glad and unashamed to be a God-fearing Christian. Thank you for being here. Thank you for those of you that are online. We welcome you, and we hope that you can be with us soon. Let's pray. Father, bless us today. Help us, and God, meet with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let us do a little bit of review. Our plan was to have a three-week uh, series on assembly, and this would be the third, and so um, that's still my plan. Let's do a little review, however. Assembling is the essence of church. It's not nearly a nice thing to do if you can. It is what church is. The actual word, uh, Greek word for church, ecclesia, means called out and assembly. If you don't assemble, you're not a church. Simple as that. If you don't assemble, you are not a church. You don't have church. How did they gather? They gathered regular. In the early days, they actually gathered daily, it says in the book of Acts. And then it began to be a pattern that they would gather at least on the first day of the week in honor of the resurrection. But they often met other times. They gathered regular. They gathered specifically. They had specific things that you can do there with the they had numbers, they had organization, they uh, had people that would come, and they knew who each other person was. I mean, there was definite organization. They gathered largely. They gathered as large groups. And uh, yes, sometimes uh, they had to have small groups, but uh, whenever they could, and we have so many cases where they gathered in a large way, and then they gathered distinctly. There are things that you, can, you must do, we must do in church that you can't do anywhere else because there are one another's. Over 100 times in the New Testament, God says, do this for one another. That means we have to do it with others in mind. And so that's what the church allows us to do. And then last week, we began talking about the five essentials of gathering, the five issues of gathering as a church. First of all, it is a pattern. The New Testament is abundantly clear. People assembled. They got baptized. They had a shepherd. They had organization. They often were together. It is the clear Bible pattern. To not do that is to not be biblical. Gathering is not only a pattern, it is a partnership. The Greek word is koinonia. It doesn't just mean, as we might say it, a little bit of fellowship, you know, chatting over a cup of coffee. Fellowship, actually, koinonia actually means partnership. We partner together. I'm here to help you. As uh, the book of Ecclesiastes says, two are better than one because when one's cold, the other can help the uh, other one get a little warmer. And so we are here to uh, be a partner. And then uh, we begin now and finalize here today. Number three, well, there's five essentials. Here's number three. And if you're writing these down, if you can get your app there, gathering is a protection. Gathering as a church, offers a powerful spiritual defense system. God likens it to an umbrella. Turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12. 
I would normally have you read out loud, but let's just uh, follow along um, with me if you would. And we beseech you, beg you. <laughs> Pretty sad when a pastor has to beg people to, to uh, follow Scripture. But, you know, whatever it takes, I guess. <laughs> you know, if we have to beg you, I'm going to beg you. I beg you, brethren, know them which labor among you and are over you. Look at that word over. Over you in the Lord. Now, some people would say, oh, well, you're talking about some kind of hierarchy, some kind of importance. And no, and the concept I want you to see is an umbrella over you. There is a spiritual protection that happens in church. He said, I beg you, brethren. The word brethren is the word that means from the same womb. It's a biblical simile here, and it's saying that you have a spiritual blood connection, which is deeper than just, you know, come if you want or come if you will. No, it is a spiritual blood connection. And with family, despite everything, there is that connection. And of course, there are some family responsibilities. Know them, brethren, know them. Now, for those of you that have been in church for a while, you've heard messages, you might know that the word know means is the Greek word gnosis, or at least that's the typical New Testament word, G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis, it just means knowledge, it technically means experiential knowledge, that you know it more than just a head knowledge, but that's actually not this word. The word here actually means appreciate those. It's not the word gnosis, it is a, a word that means to not take for granted. And I will tell you that right there is enough to make us all a little bit ashamed because it's a, it is so easy to take church for granted and specifically, don't take your pastors, don't take your spiritual leaders for granted. Now many churches are unlike the home church, I will tell you, thank God for this church, but many churches... Basically, the pastors are treated like a hired servant, little or no respect, sensitive, aggressive towards him, rude, forceful in their responses, demanding. These are just some of the things that I've uh, uh, seen over the years and pastors tell me about. But uh, the Bible says to appreciate them and appreciate what they're doing for the work's sake. And it says they're over you. Doesn't mean that they can tell you who you can marry, who you can't marry, what you can do for a job, where you can live, and all that kind of stuff. That's not meaning that. It's meaning they are over you in the sense of an umbrella, an umbrella of protection. Those Christians who are lone rangers, who go to loan, you are forfeiting a huge and wonderful umbrella of protection. God creates these umbrellas in our life, He creates them in the home, husbands and fathers and mothers to their children. And God creates these wonderful barriers to help us because we can't see everything coming. And we need someone to have our backside and someone to be a barrier against what's going on. It says, uh, you ought to understand that they labor. Look at that verse. They labor. Now, um, sometimes that's meaning physical. Yes, they actually labor. Paul labored. He would make tents, and Peter went out fishing, and some of the others would uh, serve physically. And I will tell you that uh, as a pastor, sometimes there's actual physical labor. But really, I think it's meaning more the laboring for souls, the laboring for being biblically accurate. Pastor Luke in Sunday school said, I have uh, really uh, worked over this and to, to be accurate. You see, uh, some may think that, you know, you want to just preach to, to get that excitement or, to, you know, get, to get a response. And yes, I, I like to, you know, there to be excitement in the service. And yes, I certainly would like you to make a decision. But honestly, I'm preaching as much to God or for God as I am to you. In other words, I have this huge sense of responsibility to be biblically accurate as best as I can. And I'm human, and like anybody else, you're going to make mistakes, but I want to be biblically accurate, and that's labors. I mean, that's not, that doesn't just come automatically. It takes 
uh, hours of praying and reading and studying and just getting a sense of what God wants. I think this laboring means to labor for souls, to labor for souls. The weight of what we're doing. In the Old Testament, Moses ran out when there was a plague. And there, holding in his hand that censer, he said, I stand between the living and the dead. He said, my job as a spiritual leader is to stand between the living and the dead. We've got to do something and to stop this plague. And that's exactly what a pastor does. He stands up and he's trying to stop the plague of sin that's ruining families and ruining these young people's lives. And he stands there with a censer from the altar of God and says, folks, I'm standing between the living and the dead. And you never know. I mean, I mean, there'd be, and very likely actually, there are folks now that I'm preaching to via the internet or even in this room that I will never speak to again, ever. You'll never hear me. You'll never hear another message. How terrible then it would be for me to realize that I didn't give it my best. I, I flopped and I didn't wait on God and I didn't give it my all. There I am standing between the living and the dead and I just pushed them into the dead. The apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16, and he gave this great message to the one we are a saver of death. Wow, whoo, that's some preaching right there. You'd say, what? Well, I went to this church and, man, it was just a, like, it was, the, you know, a savor of death. That's scriptural. Well, I, I thought they were supposed to make me feel good. Oh, Mr. Smiley's on TV right now. He never makes anybody feel bad. Well, that's unscriptural. God said, you're supposed to make people feel dead. Because if they're living in sin, we're supposed to shock them, we're supposed to, we're supposed to grab them, and we're supposed to say, you are about ready to die, and you are going to go to hell if you don't get saved. And the point being here, that you actually confirm that by your preaching. Because a person gets hard, and then they get bitter. We are a saver, like a, you can smell it, that's the point, that's the word picture there, like a like, a, like an incense, a savor of death unto death, and of life unto life. How is it possible that in the same service, one person can feel death and the next person can feel life? That's because one is receiving. One is taking it in. And notice Paul's last words. Who is sufficient for these things? Who, what, pers- what preacher alive feels capable of setting this in motion. I will tell you, I don't. (laughs) And I agree with the Apostle Paul, because every time I preach, I feel terrible. I do. I I just can't, I'll just be totally honest. I do. I feel terrible. I feel good, (laughs) but I feel terrible. I feel, I could have said this. I should have said this. And did I pray more? And did I, did I go to God enough? And did they, did they get it? Did they get it? And I get what Paul's saying here. Did I do enough? Who is capable for these things? And that's, what a, that's the job of a pastor he protects. He's an umbrella, a protection like a, like a parent. It's a burden. Now, it's a blessed burden, to be sure. But it's still a burden. Notice it says that a pastor labors. There's some laboring that takes place, sometimes even some very basic labor. I've cleaned many a toilet. I've done my share, but I think it's referring to mostly uh, laboring in the Word, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17, laboring in Word and doctrine. But notice what our text says. Back to 1 Thessalonians there, it says that they admonish you. That's actually a very good word, I think, to take just a moment to look at because it's a powerful word. In fact, there's a whole, um, there's a whole um, understanding about counseling from this particular word. Uh, the Greek word there is new at the tail, which means to place something in the mind. It's meaning to, to listen to something and then place the scripture, or basically to give sense, to place sense into the brain. <laughs> it's actually the word. 
It is the concept for biblical counseling as opposed to just emotional counseling. And 99% of the counseling out there, psychological counseling, psychiatrists, even Christian counseling, you want a biblical counselor. And that's this word here. It says a pastor's job is not to simply say things, but to be a nuotheteo, to to take the word and to place it into the brain, to listen or to sense problems and apply the scripture to it. There have been many times when I've talked, I don't do a lot of counseling now, but then in past years, someone would say, could I talk to you about this? And I would say, you know, well, I'll be happy to talk with you, but just so you know, I am not a trained counselor. I don't have a degree in counseling. I don't have any little, but I will listen to the problem, and I will try to, my best to give you a biblical answer. And that's exactly that word there. That's a job of a pastor. He takes, a, he listens, gets a sense of the problem. He puts this new at the tail. He, he puts scripture into the brain. He puts the, tries to figure out the right medicine for the right problem. That is a, and that's what we want, right? We want somebody who can give us a Bible answer. That's what I want. I mean, I, I, won't, I don't want to go to the, to, the, uh, to the car mechanic and him saying, yeah, you're fine. Man, you're, everything's good. I want him to say, look, if you don't fix this thing, you're going to throw a rod. I mean, come on, give me the truth. I want him to tell me. And I know it's not always uh, good, but uh, most mechanics are good at telling you the problem. I will say that. They're, they are a negative bunch of guys or women, I'll tell you, for the most part. But uh, we love them. But... But good for them. We're thankful for them. They sound the warning. And, uh, you know, in Israel today, they, uh, how in the world could a nation of a few million stand against one billion enemies on all sides? Well, they have a system called the Iron Dome system. The Iron Dome uh, defense, missile defense system. I like that. It's a covering. It's an Iron Dome. Here, Paul said, when you're in a church... A church, because of the brethren, because of the leaders, they provide an iron dome for you. And if a missile's coming in, alarms go off, everybody to the shelter. And that's the job of a pastor. When he sees an incoming missile from the devil, he sounds the alarm, watch out, watch out. And I've been praying for a couple people this week, and my heart, oh God. Oh, God, tell them. Oh, God, speak to them. Oh, God, I'm worried. I'm worried. And that's what a, that's what a, that's what a shepherd does. Now, Christians, are, God calls them sheep. A sheep that's out there all by himself, big old juicy-looking sheep. That old wolf just looks at them, he's licking his chops. Just thinking, man, I'm going to have you for breakfast, I'm going to have you for lunch, I'm going to have you for dinner. Because when that sheep gets away from the flock, that wolf just knows. But you get that, uh, you get that old sheep right in the middle of all those other sheep, and the big old rams, big old rams out there just walking along. And that wolf comes up there, that ram will take those big old things, boom, and that wolf will just, mm, I've seen too many cartoons, I know, but that's what they do. That's what they do. They just, I, I'm no, I, I know you know I'm no shepherd here, but I will tell you one thing. I'm a spiritual shepherd, and I am here to sound the alarm. And a good shepherd, he's watching all the time. He's surveying. Now, sheep are out there just eating. Eating, eating. Yeah, because they're working. They're out there working, trying to make a living. And the shepherd's watching. Watching, watching, looking. Always oh, looking around, looking back there, looking over there, looking for any sign, any rustling in the over there, listening, smelling, even smelling. You can smell those stinky old wolves. I smell, I smell, I smell something. It doesn't smell good. Something doesn't smell good. It doesn't pass the stink test. And that's what a shepherd is supposed to do. He is watching, and people that don't go to church and don't gather, they forego someone who's a covering for them, who's watching over them. Look what it says in verse 13, esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. It's very hard to show your esteem and your love for a pastor, for a leader, 
if you're not in church, if you're not there, and notice what it says, uh, we are to show it, show it. We are to um, esteem them very highly. We are to be proactive in our loyalty. Don't believe everything you hear. That's a good plan. Don't believe everything you hear about uh, your spiritual leaders. And I'll make you a deal. I won't believe everything anybody says about you either. But uh, um, be proactive. Not just don't say anything. Well, I never say anything bad. <laughs> but be proactive. Say, step up and say, no, we need to not go there with that. That's not good. And he said, you need to do that. Notice what it says. We need to do that for the work's sake. <laughs> do it for the work's sake. Now, you may not always want to do it for the pastor's sake, but do it for the, the big picture. Do it for the work's sake. Folks, we need everybody to stay together. The future of marriages, the future of children, the future of lives depend on us staying together and staying loyal with each other and getting behind those that are our spiritual leaders. Be at peace among yourselves. Notice what it says. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, we would look at that and say, Isn't that, that's a, by the way, that's a standalone statement right there. I think we would all say, amen, be at peace. And I've preached, used that verse before, be at peace among yourselves, just that so we should not be squabbling and fussing with each other. We shouldn't be a fussing sister or a fussing brother. We should, we should be peaceful people. But really, that's not the context of that verse. The context is, for the sake of your pastor, and for the bigger picture, for the sake of the work, stop squabbling, stop fussing, stop all the craziness, because it is going to hurt people. You know, much of what goes on in church is an atmosphere. It's just, it's like the atmosphere of a home. There can be tense or anger or bitterness, or separation. I mean, it's just the chemistry, really. I was a, I loved chemistry, and, and uh, was a chem lab assistant for Dr. Meredith at College of Sequoias in Visalia, and I, I, I helped him there, and uh, boy, he was, he was very, uh, made sure I was very careful on how we mixed things, and we had to be very careful when you were mixing hydrochloric acid or sulfuric acid, for example. I don't ever actually remember what it is now, but I think it's, uh, you know, you, uh, well, anyway, I don't remember. But uh, whether you put the water into the chemical or the chemical into the water, but I remember him saying, don't, do, don't make this mistake because this will blow up. And there was a lot of other chemistry things, too. Chemistry, mixing chemicals wrong can just be a disaster, folks. We are all ingredients in this place. And man, I don't want this church to be a powder keg. Let's make sure that we're at peace with each other because atmosphere makes such a huge difference. Someone told me this week, they said, Pastor, there is such a death atmosphere in the church today, not our church. But he was saying, out there in the world, he said, we've kind of gotten some connections and heard things. They said, it's just, people are so fearful. They're so like all withdrawn. But he said, it's just so different at the home church. I thank God for the chemistry that the Holy Spirit brings together. That is important, folks. That is our job to lift up and to make sure that we all work together for the work's sake. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey the, them that have the rule over you. There's that word again, over you. They're a spiritual umbrella. They watch for your souls. Why should we do this? Well, for one reason, look what that says, it's unprofitable for us. It's unprofitable for us. Now, 40 plus years ago, I was a layman in a church, and I had a pastor, Dr. Ray Bademus, Central Baptist Church of Pomona, and I love my pastor. And uh, he, uh, now, um, I honestly, I had a desire to make him happy. I did. I mean, I felt like I was doing it for the Lord, but I, I wanted to make him happy. And um, I felt like if I made him happy, I was making the Lord happy. I really did. And I was self-serving enough to believe that actually if I made him happy and I made the Lord happy, that actually would probably make my life happy. And that's exactly what the verse says. It says, it's unprofitable to have an unhappy pastor. Now, if he's worth his salt, he will minister in grief, as it says. I mean, 
Pastors minister in grief and they minister in joy. They, you have a happy pastor or a sad pastor. And, they, and if he's worth his salt, he will do it. He will preach in season and out of season. And I can tell you after four decades, there have been both. It just, that's true. But it is so much better for the chemistry when, because it, it's unprofitable for us if we're fussing about this and fussing about that and sending off emails and saying things and doing this and putting out, let, come on now, folks, that's just, and that's, thank God that is not this church. I will just tell you, I bless you, but those of you out there and even here, let's just make sure that it never is because it is so important that we get behind our pastors, our leaders, and stay there. Don't be a church hopper and uh, be a church worker. I um, remember the old uh, song. You remember the old uh, gospel song, the church hop? I'll read it to you just in case you don't remember it. Once there was a shepherd, I've been told, had some sheep who wouldn't stay in the fold. Sunday morning, Wednesday night, checking out every site, every church in sight. The shepherd said, kids, we got to have a talk. The wolves are going to get you if you're not in the flock. Don't be doing the church hop. Don't be doing the church hop. Now don't be doing the church hop. You just can't stop. Don't you be doing the church hop. Some folks go where they get fed. They do. Some go where they get feel led. Do you? Some folks just can't make up their mind. Changing churches all the time. They want something hot. They want something new. They just can't find that perfect pew. Some for the money, some for the show. Preach about commitment and they go, go, go. Doing that church hop. The church hop. Once you get started, you just can't stop. You're going to do the church hop. <laughs> Let's not be church hoppers. Let's have a commitment and a loyalty to a specific assembly. Stay there and stay there serving God because it is part of our koinonia. It is part of our partnership with the things of God. All right, let's go to point number four or five here. I'm going to skip over a couple of verses. Gathering is a pattern. It is a partnership. It is a protection. And then it is, number four, a profession. It is a profession. Why do we gather? We gather because we are publicly professing who we are. We're identifying. Now, um, before you can go into a restroom, at least it used to be, you had to identify yourself. I'm a male or I'm a female. Uh, if you travel, you have to identify yourself. You have to say, I'm with this country. I have a passport to prove it. And uh, it's very public and everybody does it. But these are necessary controls built into our society by some smart people. You and I, by profession, are Christians, little Christ. We are inseparably connected to Him. Let's just be proud of it. Let's not be ashamed of it because honestly, once you're in Christ, it's inseparable. Look what Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3 says, for ye are dead now. Your old life's dead. Your new life is hid with Christ in God. Hid in Christ. That means it, you can't even tell where Christ ends and I begin. I am so connected. I'm so intertwined. My whole DNA has changed. It's, I've got a, and you can't change your DNA. That's why you can't change these biologic. People say, well, I transitioned. Well, you may have transitioned, but it's all in your head because uh, the genetics tell a different story. That's the facts. Our, um, uh, one of my, several of my children then got together and did one of those DNA tests to find out, you know, what background you are. And so uh, they did that. And I spit in a little tube there and sent it off. And from that spit, what's well, some very important spit, I'll tell you. But they, they, had not, they knew nothing about me other than my name and my birth. That was it. That's all they knew. And they sent me back this detailed description of where my background, French and German and mostly Scottish, uh, English, and I pretty much figured, that, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And the amazing thing was they sent me a list of relatives. I mean, I looked all, look at that. Well, there's old Martin Junkie. I, 
heard of him. He's, he's my cousin. I haven't heard from him for a long time. Look at that. Now, that's scary. Here's all of your relatives. We know because you share the same DNA, or 10%, I think he shared, or 15, whatever it was. I was like, really? Now, I can't, there's no, there is no telling any difference because I am a, that's my DNA. That's what Jesus said here. Folks, once you get saved, it's part of your DNA. You are a Christian. You might as well go ahead and just say, that's what I am. Folks, I could say I'm, I'm not Scottish, you know, I've do something to kind of change me and say, I, I really don't like that. But my DNA, DNA tells a different story. Folks, your DNA is clear. You are a Christian. You are a born-again, Bible-believing Christian. You're here, and you can't change that. So might as well just identify with it. Might as well just make it public. I've been amazed and blessed, but at the same time, just incredulous. We have had so many of our people. I mean, I've a half a dozen or more I've heard who have gone back to work and either gotten in trouble or at least been, got the side eye from people who said, where did you do over the weekend? Went to church. What? You went to church? You went to church? And uh, I mean, and I have been so blessed with our people. They just said, yep, I went to church. Funny thing is, now, if they had told them, we've been out rioting, oh, really? Good. Over the weekend. I'm glad you were out rioting. But uh, now, so I, I thought I'd just tell you, if anybody asked you where you were on Sunday, just said, I was at the, church, I was at the spiritual riot. That's where we, we had, over there on West Lane, we gathered together, had a riot. And uh, there you go. Got it. And... Uh, what did Paul tell Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 8? Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Folks, we are not supposed to be shamed Christians like, well, you know, I, just, well, I don't want to ever say I'm going to church. Come on now, just get out there, be proud of it, take the reproach, and you're going to get the reproach. I mean, folks, every down through history, from the very beginning, Church attenders had to bear reproach. Nobody got to go without bearing some kind of reproach. Now, it's been good in America for a while, you know. I mean, in some areas of America, you go to church, it's actually a good thing. The community looks at it as good. It's not going to be that way in the future, folks. It's not that way right now. I mean, people looking at it as you've done something sinful. I mean, something wrong, something almost immoral. Like, What? When did going to worship Jesus become immoral? I'm telling you, folks, that's exactly what's happening in America. It's happening in the world. But Paul said, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of what we're doing. Don't be ashamed at all. Make sure that you make a public profession. It is a pattern. It is a partnership. It is a protection. It is a profession. When you come to church, you are publicly saying, Here's my passport. I'm headed to heaven. I'm a citizen of another country. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not going to rub it in your face. I'm not going to be proud. I mean, you know, you know mean. And, but I'll tell you one thing. I'm set. I am settled on this matter. I am a Bible-loving, Christ-loving Christian. My life is hid with Christ in God. There, we are together on this matter. And then number five, gathering is a participation. Church allows us to do something that nothing else allows, and that is to serve God at its highest level. How many times in the New Testament God calls it co-laboring and working together? For example, in Romans chapter 16 and verse 21, Timotheus, another uh, term for Timothy, uh, Pastor Timothy, Paul's son in the Lord, he said, my work fellow, my work fellow, we work together serving Christ. When we come to church, we come to work. Really. Now, I know that many people come to listen or to come to, to worship. But really, uh, a church uh, is meant, a gathering is meant for koinonia, as it says. Who can I pray for today? I come into church. I'm reminded. I see somebody. I'm going to pray for them right now. I'm coming. 
I can pray with them after the services. I can pray with them before the services. Who can I pray for? Who can I encourage with a verse? Who can I, who can I encourage with a positive word? Who can I give a smile to? When I come to church, it's about serving. It's about coming. You see, individualistic Christianity, which there's so much of today. I mean, for the most part, many people have a parachurch thing they're interested in, and they, you know, they do this, and they do that, and they're listening, but it's not a gathering. They connect via internet, or they gather, you know, via text messages, or via letters, or mail, or whatever, but they never gather. They don't have a shepherd. They don't have, and they're not there to serve. They're simply there for some cause or some concept they believe in, but serving that's the reason behind it is, a, it is a coming together, it is a participation. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 says, He gave the church and the leaders, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the what? For the work of the ministry. Pastor led, deacon served, and the church ministers. We all are ministers for the edifying of the body of Christ. There are people that come every Sunday who are here, and they could use someone to just encourage them. Maybe give them a $20 bill in their Bible just to tell them we love them or to, you know, to give them a gift card or whatever. But I mean, every time we come to church, the, the focus ought to be on serving. Serving. Not what I can get, but what can I give? Who can I bless? I can bless a little child. I can bless a senior saint. I can open a door. I can be kind. I can do something. But what can I do? And really, it's all about serving out in the world, too. That's, we, we just go out there and we serve. Anything we can do outside of the church, we can do far better with the support of the church. In the New Testament, it was unthinkable for someone to go out to a one of those neighboring countries without having a sending church. What kind of person do you think you are? You just fly out on your own without anybody sending you? Who are you anyway? Why? Because we need each other. That's what the church is all about. Take your Bible, please, and we'll turn to this final passage, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 25. You may have never heard about this amazing guy, but his name was Epaphroditus. <laughs> kind of a funny name because he's actually named after the Greek love goddess, Epaphrodite, <laughs> but uh, meaning his parents were heathens, absolute heathens, pagans. Philippians 2 and verse 25, I, I supposed it necessary to send unto you Epaphroditus. Nobody I could have sent to you, church, was any better than Epaphroditus. When I let Epaphroditus go so he could come to you, I gave you the top notch. Why? And then Paul gives five attributes of Epaphroditus. He was my brother. He was like a brother to me. He was like a brother to me. Are you a brother to somebody? Are you a sister to somebody? That was a brother to them, a spiritual family. He was a companion in labor. Boy, we sweat together. We worked together. We worked a fellow soldier. We were in the trenches serving God, your messenger. As far as I know, he didn't preach a message. As far as I know, he didn't have some big, um, you know, position of leadership. He was just a messenger boy, a newspaper boy, bringing the good news. And he that ministered to my wants. I had wants. And I'm going to tell you, this guy was there. He ministered to my wants, not just my needs, to my wants. Like David, who said, if I could have a glass of water from that brook, I would give anything. And boy, his men went out there, and David was so ashamed that he had given in to his a want, but that these men would sacrifice their life that he could have a drink of cold water. And there have been many of you who have done the same thing that over the years, and especially when through the years with these children and through the years with, uh, as Lynette Went to be with the Lord. I tell you, one people would minister and still do minister and minister. Thank you. Now you are like an Epaphroditus. And notice verse 30. Because for the, for the recreation of being a Christian, for the Christian cruises, no, for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life 
to supply your lack of service towards me. Well, now he, Paul pretty much laid it out there. He said, uh, honestly, you guys were kind of lowballing the ministry. You were lowballing the ministry. You had your mind and everything else. And I don't think they were especially rich people, but he said, look, I don't, you need to step up. But I could count on Epaphroditus. He always stepped up. He always had my back. He was always there. And that's what a church should be. A church should be there to to work with each other and to hunker down and to be there through the long haul. You know, America had a great revival spirit in the early centuries. People, for the most part, all went to church. And America had this amazing revival spirit. One of the things that characterized the early churches of America was the longevity of the people and the longevity of the ministry. I was reading this week, and I thought I'd share it to you. And with this, I close. In the 1700s, 70% of pastors, now listen, during that century, 70% of pastors had one church their entire life. I mean, that is unheard of today. I mean, there, you're looking at somebody that's, I don't, that's uh, where I'm at, but I'm telling you, for the most part, that is rare. 70% of pastors had one church their whole life. And I was reading about one particular church. It was pastored by a father, a son, and a grandson for 123 years total. I'm ta- you talk about faithful long haul, you know, hunker, boy, I'm telling you what, folks. Now, my point is, folks, I am bound to this church. I am here. I am here to stay. I'm t- it's too old to go anywhere now. And uh, I am here to finish this thing strong. And the next decade, in the next two decades, in the next 50 years, or the 100 years that the Lord tarries is coming, are going to be great. They're going to be amazing. I'm telling you what, I'm excited. Woo! I'm I tell you what, we've had, the whole church has just had a whole nother revival. Just get back on this thing. Folks, souls are still dying and going to hell. We can't, we can't stop because of some crazy stuff going on. However bad it is, let's say, let's get out there and be there for people. Let's do what we can. It is an amazing time to get part of the church. You say, what should I do? I say, stand up for Jesus. Make sure that you get part of what we're doing here. Get part of our new members class. We have some cards back there. You can sign up on your app. In August, we're going to come together in that class. Be part of that new members class. Get baptized. Come to church every time the doors are open. Folks, it is the gathering place. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. We have a great uh, chorus playing for you, a great hymn. Stand up, stand up for Jesus.